0: I'm grateful that we are getting into a rhythm of of doing that uh, together, praying for for these other churches and also praying for that. I hope that it's um, encouraging to you. I'm sorry I just untied my shoes by stepping on them. I don't want to die. So before we get going, uh, I want you to first understand... Um, the text, or for us to understand the text, and looking at Luke chapter 10 um, and, and what's going on in the passage this morning, we need to set it in context with the with the full, the whole gospel and what Luke is accomplishing by recounting these uh, these words of Jesus and, and what's happening in this passage. This passage is 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 really linked to our passage uh, last week, and I, and I hope you can see. Some of these, and I'll just point a few of these out. When Jesus prayed the prayer to His Father and and, and rejoicing, He was rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. He prayed and He said, Thank you, Father, for hiding, for keeping these things hidden from those who are wise and understanding. And so what we talked about last week and also this morning what we'll see, that the wise and understanding, for the most part, were the teachers, the preachers, the educated the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers, all those who, before Jesus, had this moral and educational, academic, moral superiority um, and were upright in everything, and they were the ones who, in their own minds, in their own hearts, they had everything figured out. And, of course, Jesus was praying, Lord, you've hidden the truth of these things and you've revealed it to little children, those disciples that were... Uh, around them, and and of course um, that wasn't all of them. By the way, uh, we we know from John chapter three that that Nicodemus, a a and a ruler of the of the Jews, came to Jesus by night, and I'm I'm honestly asking Lord, who who are you? What's what's really going on here? Um, and so we know that it wasn't a a blanket everybody, but certainly the Lord was revealing Himself and including uh, Nicodemus as as well. Now, he was asking the same question, though. Nicodemus essentially was asking the same question of the guy in our passage this morning. The lawyer is asking, and, and yet with a different heart than what we will see this morning. Um, the lawyer that we're going to see here in chapter 10 was not a lawyer in the sense that we know a, a, a lawyer would do, but this, uh, the lawyers of this of this time, are lawyers who know the law, the Mosaic law. They, they, they knew and they understood the Torah. This dude was varsity Mosaic law. He knew it in and out. He understood it. He was in that list of the wise and understanding in the eyes of this guy. But what we will see this morning is that he is helplessly, ignorantly blind to the revelation of the kingdom of God that was standing right before him. So before we read this passage, just kind of putting that in, 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 context. I'd say that when you, when we read this, this is going to be very familiar. We're gonna, we're gonna, we know what this is. This passage is all about. We've heard these things, but I want you to take note of, of, of two parts of the passage, two, two things that are, that are going on, and that is the two questions and the two answers. The two are the questions and the answers. the lawyer is going to ask Jesus two questions. In verse 25, he's going to ask a question. And then in verse 29, he is going to ask a question. And Jesus is also going to ask two questions in response to this guy to get him to answer his own questions. So Verses 26 and 36. And then Jesus will answer, uh, or actually this Jesus will take, uh, the, the two questions that this guy then answers for Jesus and say, man, you've answered both of them right. You got them, you got them both right. Um, but what we're going to see is, is good studiers and good students of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to still know that there's a huge problem. That there's a huge problem in the text. And Even though this guy gets these answers right, there's a huge problem. So let's look now to chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in verse 25. Pardon my children for being awesome. (laughs) Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's question number one. The lawyer's question. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Notice that word, live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set on him his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is the lawyer speaking. Verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word to his glory and our joy. Amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan. We've all heard this parable. I'm fairly confident we've all heard this in one way or another, whether at church or you've heard it in popular culture, culture you've heard it. It's widespread, um, but the interaction between Jesus and, and the lawyer here, um, the Gospel of Luke is actually the only of all the Gospels that records the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Matthew and Mark re- record the earlier section of when he's asking him uh, uh, that first that first question on inheriting eternal life. Now, there are several pieces of Scripture that we hear often quoted uh, in, in our culture uh, and in our society. Um, particularly around political seasons, political campaigning. And, and this is kind of one of them that's brought up about being the good Samaritan, about being the one who's more compassionate than the other guy or the other, or the other gal. Um, this passage is often used in that way. Um, and often as this passage is used, I would say most of the time, it has fairly um, been misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misapplied, hasn't it? Uh, for example, those who hold to what is called the social gospel, the, a social gospel, which is that Jesus uh, did not come necessarily to die for our sins and reconcile us to God, but, but Jesus came actually to change our thinking and our practice on how we treat one another, how we care for the poor, how we seek peace in the world. Uh, Jesus was more of a, a community organizer and upriser of of doing good in, uh, in the world more than being our savior for our sins. Now, I'm oversimplifying just a little bit, but just to give you an understanding, that's pretty much the tenet of the social gospel. And so when they read the parable of the Good Samaritan, this fits exactly right into their social gospel. Um, they would say that the essence of Christianity and is everything that we're supposed to be doing as the church is showing compassion and meeting the felt needs of of those around us, the poor and also around the world. So no need to preach sin, the sin of man. No need to preach reconciliation with God. No need to preach substitutionary atonement. It's out the window. We don't need that. All we need is giving money, and caring and soup kitchens and things like that for the poor. And if you just go out on the road like the Good Samaritan, you will see that there's plenty to do. Now, if, you, if it, all you do is read this passage, if that's all you do is just kind of pull this out of context, then absolutely, yeah. Be the Good Samaritan. We all should aspire to be the Good Samaritan and, and be good. But the problem with that interpretation completely is that it ignores the context of the rest of Luke. The main, part, the main point of this story is not to give us the core of our doctrine. The main part of this point of this story is that what Jesus is doing is he is pointing out what is hidden in this man's heart. He's pointing out what is hidden in this man's heart, and that is his need, as all mankind, for saving grace. Now, before we cast aside all practical implications of this passage, we also can see that this passage does practically apply to the Christian, on how we love and how we care for others. Um, considering what Spurgeon said about this parable, he said, the story of the Good Samaritan, which is now before us, is a case in point for our Lord, is there is explaining, <clears throat> excuse me, a point which rose out of the question, what shall I do to etern- what shall I inherit to eternal life? So you see the connection. The parable is out of a question that Jesus is answering about e- uh, inheriting eternal life, salvation. The question is legal, he says, and the answer is to the point. But let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. That's a a big line. That's a really good line there. The law tells us what we ought to be. And it is one subject of the gospel to raise us to that condition. So that essentially the main point of this passage is is that Jesus is showing us the purpose of the law in revealing our need for the gospel. He is revealing, that they're showing us that the purpose of the law of God is revealing to us our great desperate need for the grace of God given to us through Christ by the good news of the gospel. And it is then how the gospel then produces a great delight to be obedient to the law. There's a lot going on in this passage, so let's, let's unpack it and and then towards the end I'll, I'll bring it all together and show you our greatest pursuits from this passage. So in verse 25 a lawyer stands up to address Jesus. Now... This was probably during a time when Jesus was, was teaching a larger group, kind of maybe like this, and Jesus was sitting down. That's the tradition that a teacher would sit down, everybody would be listening. And the, for the lawyer to stand up, he wasn't, he wasn't barging in, he wasn't interrupting Jesus and trying to make his voice heard, but standing up before the crowd was a sign of respect and honor that he had for Jesus as the teacher. So he wasn't interrupting, but he was honoring him with his actions he was addressing him as a teacher right he addressed him as a teacher which is another sign of respect but luke also lets us into where the heart of this man really is that even though underneath this this outward facade of respect and honor what did he want to do he was testing jesus he was trying to test Jesus, to catch him doing something wrong, or to outsmart him. Remember, he's varsity. He knows the law. So see this already from the outset of our passage, brothers and sisters. That sometimes, many times, and sometimes very often, are the actions of our heart and our actions in our life, in this life and how we even do honor and respect, can be far from each other, can't they? We see this right here in this guy. His actions and his heart are far from each other. But he does ask a good question, doesn't he? He does ask a good question. It's a question that we're familiar with. We've heard this question before because it's frequently asked in the New Testament. In, in eight more chapters, in Luke chapter 18, we're going to see how the rich young ruler is going to ask the same thing. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? We see it a few more times in the book of Acts. What must we do to be saved? It's a pretty standard question. It's a question that the Jews had, that they were interacting with. They wanted to know this the answer to this question and the reason why it's an all important question because it's the question about salvation and for them through the lenses that they were looking in looking through it was for those who would receive the inheritance that was promised to Abraham that was the question that, or that was the lenses that they were looking in looking through how do I get in how do I stand right before God how do I get my sins forgiven you know what's funny is that this question is just not new. Uh, Liberals of the 20th century said that this is a question that fundamentalists just made up in the 20th century, so that we would get more people to be conservative and believe the Bible. But this is a question that's been asked for ages. What must I do to inherit the eternal life? What must I do to be saved? So Jesus answers him in a way that really we, we know that Jesus answers, right? Jesus answers this guy with another question. Verse 26, he says, what does the law say? How do you read it? So Jesus asking the, the lawyer now, this expert in the law. He's kind of schooling him. He's turning it around. How do you see? How, how do you read the law? You, you know the law. But Jesus, I love this, he knows where the answer is, doesn't he? Where does he tell this guy where to go? What does the law say? So what's the answer to the question? Where do, we, or where do we find the answer to the question? But in the Scripture. We find the answer to this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is in the Bible and nowhere else but in the Scripture and even in the Old Testament. I love this because here's Jesus Trusting in the sufficiency of Scripture. That's a free freebie right there. Jesus trusting in the sufficiency of Scripture. And so the lawyer, he's he's quick to answer the question and he knows the law. Boom, I know it. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Now, that's the summation of the first four commandments of of God. It's also a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5. He knew this, and he had it literally written down on his mind. You can go back and search the Old Testament and see what that means. He also says, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a direct quote from Leviticus 19. Out of all places in the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus 19, which we've talked about Leviticus 19 several times in the purification of the the leper. All that's in Leviticus 19, including love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summation of the last six commandments. And Jesus hears this, and he's like, bingo, you're right, you got it. That's the answer. What do you do? You do these things. Do this and you will live. You, you do that, bro, you're good. You're, you're covered. You can come walk with me. You can come sit with me. In these two things, you will find life. Simple questions that we're familiar with. We even know these answers. And, and he gets these answers right. But Jesus says to go and do it. Now there's the problem. Therein lies the problem to those simple questions and even a simple answer is to go and do it. The reality is is that there is not one person who has ever kept the full force of these two commands. Our whole lives much less in the last five minutes. And when Jesus says to go and do this, there is an impossibility that is set before this man. There is an impossibility that is set before us because we cannot do this fully. You cannot sin and yet still fully love God. They are complete. Abject opposites of one another. You cannot say we love God completely, fully, and perfectly, and then sin. It's impossible to say that. Much less love our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus is telling him, Hey man, if, if you want to be saved by your own ability, then you've got to follow the law completely and perfectly. So, do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is the point of the parable that we're about to unpack. The lawyer can give the right answers, but Jesus isn't necessarily concerned about the right answers. He's not impressed necessarily by the right answers. What he is impressed about is what he is doing and what he is going to do. That is what he is impressed by. And so the lawyer is not living up to those right answers. And Jesus is pointing this out, showing him the sin in his heart. And that's the problem. The problem is we, we cannot fulfill the law's demands, even at our best efforts. Even if we are varsity, we are still broken sinners in need of God's grace. Right answers can be good. Right answers could be, can be helpful. We are to teach those things. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, actually says, teach these things to your children. So teach your children these right answers, these, these good things. They're helpful. But completely, fully, perfectly, we are incapable of loving God and our neighbors. So do you catch what I'm saying? Do you catch what Jesus is doing here? Jesus isn't telling this guy, hey, you're saved. He's exposing the sin in this man's heart and in exposing the sin in his life. We know a lot of right answers. and We know a lot about doing the right thing. But is that enough to be forgiven by God? Now verse 29, the lawyer responds back to Jesus. And I think he responds back in this way because he's trying to save some face here. I think he knows in in the heart of his heart, he knows, yeah, I I love God in in, in certain ways and I can give evidences of those things, but I know it's not perfect. Maybe I can get away with the second one. So he asks the question to Jesus, and really, it's the wrong question. But he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Now, asking that question he's trying to justify himself. You see that there? Asking the question he's trying to justify himself, justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Meaning this, he was trying to he was this man was controlled by his own desire to make himself right before God. Right? Go back to the first question. What must I do? Have wanting to justify himself. He is Controlled with this desire to make himself right before God because in some way or form or fashion, he thought that if he lived life in, in, in a certain way, he would make himself better than anyone else and God would have to accept him. You see, this is what experts in moral law do. This is what they do. They never look at the, the root issues of their own heart. They never look at themselves. They never dig deeper than what they're doing on the outside. He didn't want Jesus to justify him. He didn't want Jesus to justify him. Hear those words. He wanted himself to justify himself. In asking this question, who is my neighbor, he wants to justify himself also on his own terms. You know, this is essentially what a works-based religion Hats to do, doesn't it? They have to take what God's grace and they have to manipulate it, contort it, to to and, and lower these the standards that God has given to us. Because they think that they have to justify themselves. They take God's standards and they lower them and contort them and manipulate them so that then they are then able to clear those hurdles. Whether it's comparing themselves to others or just externally look a certain way. Now, I think what this guy was looking for in his answer and what he was expecting Jesus to say is the answer that the Jews came up with as their little theology of what it means to be a neighbor. He knew what, he knew in his mind what Jesus should have said. And, and, and the, their theology of their neighbors was their families. Your neighbor is your family. Your neighbor is your friends. Your neighbor is, is Israel. Your neighbor is, is Jews. And so then he can say, Yep, Jesus, I love my neighbors. I take care of my neighbors. I I, I took care of Uncle Joe yesterday. I love him. He's my neighbor. So they created their own way. But Jesus just derails him, doesn't he? He derails him with this story and blows up this self-justification in light of the perfect love of God, doesn't he? He blows it up with love, doesn't he? The, the love of God. Let's dig into the story now that we're all familiar with. Verse 30, there was a man and he went down to Jericho. Now, undoubtedly, this guy had to be on some important trip and the reason why I say that is because you do not take the road from Jerusalem to Jericho unless you absolutely have to. So when, these, when, when they heard Jesus say, there was a man who went, from, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They all were like, oh, crud. We know what's about to happen. Now, this was a treacherous journey. Of course, he gets attacked by robbers, so it's really bad. But it's also physically treacherous, geographically treacherous, a 17-mile journey, literally going down. So when it says going down literally, it's a 4,000-foot drop in elevation literally going down in over those 17 miles. But the greatest danger was not just the, the terrain. The greatest, greatest danger was, a lot of times, our greatest danger and other people. Robbers and thieves that, that, that hid along the way. So the, they knew what was going to happen, just like we know when someone says, why did the chicken cross the road? We know what's going to happen. The attack though, isn't the important part of the story. The robbers aren't the important part of the story. The important part of the story is the guys that come along the road. They come along after the attack. And first there was the priest. There was the, the, the Jewish priest. Now, now he has a, a reasonable excuse for being on that road. He probably traveled in a bigger group. He didn't, nobody went by themselves. That might have been the first guy's problem. But he traveled in a group, and a lot of priests actually lived in Jericho. And when they would go up to Jerusalem for their uh, their two-week service, they would have to make the uh, 17-mile trip. And as as he sees this guy, though, the priest sees this guy half dead, as Jesus describes him, on the side of the road, what does he do? He just keeps walking. Now, for centuries, people have banged on this guy. This guy's got a pretty bad rap. And I want to kind of help put this in context just a little bit. For the, maybe give a little bit of an excuse for this guy. i me give you a couple of things on why this guy would walk by. Uh, first, it's a dangerous road. We've already established that. And, and if he was to stop to help this guy, wouldn't that put him also in danger of being attacked and robbed? Because that was, the, that was the thing. Leave the dude on the side of the road and someone would stop. I'm going to attack them too and take what they had. So first, it was a dangerous road. If he stops, he could be next. Second, the guy just looked dead. And he's a priest. Priests don't mess with dead people. Why? Because it would make them ceremonial and, and morally unclean. And especially if he's going up to Jerusalem to do the temple service. He's, not, he's going to be disqualified. And the, the financial cost that would, he would have to incur if he stopped and touched this guy for the purification rites, the cow, the heifer that he would have to buy, the other sacrifices, the seven days he would have to give up and be away from his family to, to sacrifice and to do and go through this risk. The shame that he would have before his peers for touching a dead guy. That's some good excuses and why not to help this guy. Third, he doesn't know him. He doesn't know him. He doesn't know if he has an obligation to him or not. If he's my neighbor, maybe I will. Remember? Jew, family, friend. But if he's not my neighbor, if I don't know that he's my neighbor, I can just keep going by. This guy's got some pretty good excuses, pretty good reasons. It's easy for us, though, when we read this situation to know what the right answer is, isn't it? It's easy for us to read it and be like, yep, man, this guy's terrible. I wouldn't have done that. But if we had so much to lose if we would help someone, if it cost us that much, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be so quick to berate this guy. Second, the Levite. Now, the, the Levite wasn't a priest. He was what you would call the associate pastor. Right, so he wasn't as cool. He didn't have as much money as a priest and, and stuff like that. He did all the, they did all the organizing of the temple and the, the uh, God made sure everything was good to go for the different sacrifices. But this guy traveling on the same road saw the same guy. He saw the same guy. And he, when he saw him, he actually went to the other side of the sidewalk. He went to the other side of the trail. So not even to get near him, much less... Touch him. Now, this guy, the Levite, he is bound to the same ritualistic laws of the priest. So if he would have touched him, it would have been the same thing. He's under the same obligation. So he wasn't going to get near that guy. The priest didn't, why should I? Right? Now, here comes the third guy. Now, I think that they were expecting, actually, for them to say... Some normal Joe Jew came by, and normal Joe Jew had compassion on him, because it was kind of popular in the day to bang on, you know, leaders and things like that. And and no, but Jesus goes way the other direction, just simply scandalous. And that is, he says, no, a Samaritan, a Samaritan came up to him, and he had compassion on him. Now, you remember we talked about the Samaritans and and how Jews considered Samaritans. In fact, they thought pigs were better than Samaritans. They had prayers. The Jewish had prayers that Samaritans would not be forgiven. They would pray, God, don't save these half-breeds. And they're half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile, Assyrian. But the feeling was pretty mutual, as we talked about. Remember, these are the guys that rejected Jesus to coming into their town because Jesus set his face toward uh, Jerusalem. But did you know that even the Samaritan, did you know that the Samaritan was bound to the same ritualistic rites as the priest and the Levite? He was bound by the same rituals? But yet it wasn't the law that motivated him in his decision. It was, what does the text say? His compassion... And it was that compassion that led him to, to give first aid and to care and to be that first responder, to care for this guy, to put him on his ride and to take him back to the, to the nearest end, putting himself in danger, right? He put himself in danger, and then he paid for the expenses of this man at the end and whatever else it cost to take care of him. Two denarii, which is two days' wages. So get, take what you got paid for a day. And, and, and multiplied that by two, and he gave that up to the care of this guy. It would seem that from this passage that the Samaritan had no level of sacrifice that he would not give to care for this guy. There's no level of sacrifice he would give or go or do to take care of this guy. And the thing that we don't know about this story, which is probably true, is that this guy might have been a Jew, too. A Samaritan caring for a Jew. Now, this parable was scandalous. It's just scandalous. I mean, it's hard to to wrap our minds around that. So Jesus answers this guy's question with this scandalous story. So when this guy was trying to narrow his obligation to loving his neighbor, what does Jesus do? He just says, nope, it's this wide. It's, it's this wide. And Jesus asks him, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he gives a story, makes him answer the question, and the guy says, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. The lawyer couldn't even say the Samaritan. Couldn't even say it. Just the one who showed mercy. So so he gets the answer right again to Jesus' question. But Jesus still exposes this this man's heart, his deficiency to his greatest need for grace. And so Jesus, once again, says the same thing that he told him to do earlier. Go. Go. You go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Those who inherit eternal life, those who inherit the kingdom, those who receive the blessings of God promised to Abraham are those who love God and love their neighbors. Dude, how's that working for you? That's kind of what's going on here. How's that working for you? Are you doing that? As far as we know, this lawyer never gets to the real problem of his heart, and he never sees the real solution before him. You know, throughout the week as I began, uh, was preparing the sermon and just thinking and meditating on the text for a while, and I began to show, see how this text was, was revealing to us as the church, as, as God's people, um, our, our greatest pursuits, our greatest pursuits, um, in fact it's, I think it would be very hard to to find a passage um, in the scripture at least for for me that brings together my my prayer and my hope uh, for for you and for this church over the next lord willing thirty forty years if if I'm around that long um, and these three things these three pursuits that I see here, this first one, which would be the main point of the the text is this unceasing need for God's grace. And, 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 and always remembering and seeing that, that despite our best attempts, we are unable to meet God's holy and perfect requirements to love the Lord and to love our neighbors as ourselves, And that without His grace, we would still be blind, we'd still be hidden. The, the very reality of our depravity in our spiritual bankruptcy toward God, we would still be left in those places regardless of our right answers. This is one of my greatest hopes. Is this is something that as we go forth together, that this is what we will be battling for for years. In my own heart, in my children, in my family, and in our church, we'll be battling for, for this grace to be known to us over and over and over again. This idea when our hearts and our actions and our words just don't line up. Do you know one of the most dangerous false gospels um, that is rampant in in our culture? Um, I I don't really think it's the social gospel. It's there. Um, It's it's certainly all around, and I think it's all around because it just feels good. It feels good to do something like that. But I think one of the most dangerous Gospels that is running rampant in our culture, where we live, is what I call the Gospel of Conformity. The Gospel of Conformity, and it's no Gospel at all, by the way. Um, and that is, um, it's, it's more like what American evangelicalism looks like. And it's not Christianity. It's, it's not a form of Christianity. It's a dress a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way, Only if you're from a certain place, don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't dance. I don't know if anybody really does that anymore. Play cards, maybe. Vote in a certain way is now becoming the criteria of being a Christian. And for many, those things or similar things, that's the the crux to their Christianity. To, To take on some moral look or some moral stance. And, and if you step outside of those particular things, then you're not one of us. You're not a, a part of us. And in a sense, this is exactly what the, the lawyer does to justify himself. He's created his own things to control what? His desire to justify himself. He's created his own code that makes himself look good. And then what he's doing, he's trying to put Jesus in his debt in sort of a way to get him to agree with this code that he's come up with. And this is what this gospel of conformity does. One of the most sickening parts of this gospel of conformity is the wake of tragedy that it leaves. Several thousands of people have gone into churches and out of churches and have been beaten up and abused by churches because they believe these things. And they get no ounce of grace and forgiveness. And they just are left in the wake. And yet, one of the reasons why it's so popular, though, is because it makes people feel good about themselves when they can justify themselves before God, all the while ignoring the two great parts of the law. Showing, basically, you can't do it. What you're espousing to say, what you're doing, is an impossibility. It's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is teaching us this morning. The Bible is speaking to us differently because there's no one that can earn eternal life. No one can justify themselves. In this story of the Good Samaritan, we want to read this story, and, and we want to be the Samaritan and and definitely we don't want to be the priest right that's why these guys are always banged on we don't want to be the 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 levite we want to be the good guy and we want to do better but if you were honest if you were honest and i hope that you are honest with yourselves and your heart this morning with the holy spirit and you could take a step back you would see that you are not like the samaritan But in this story, you are more like the helpless dying man on the side of the road. We were once like the helpless dying man on the side of the road. Because unless someone with a neighbor-like love comes down that road by chance, as the text says, we would have certainly died. You, You see, beloved, we were the ones in desperate need of someone to show us love. And to show us and heal us from our sin that has sickened us and robbed us and left us dead. When we see this story from that perspective, from that angle, the real hero, the real Samaritan is Jesus. Jesus is the real Samaritan. Stop reading yourself as the hero and delight in the hero. Stop delighting in yourself and being the hero. And look at Christ, who is the one who walked down the road and saw us and pulled us out and put us on his donkey and healed and bound up our wounds and redeemed us before his Father. That while we were still sinners, he paid our ransom. And we no longer live according to our righteousness. We no longer live with the desire to justify ourselves, oh brothers and sisters, be free from that. But we live according to Christ's righteousness that was freely given to us, that was imputed to us. That's the main point being made here. That's the main point that Luke is getting across throughout the gospel. But Luke is also getting across throughout Acts. This is why Jesus came. Have you trusted only in Christ's death and resurrection as the means for you to inherit eternal life? And now it's by that grace, though, that drives us, as hopefully you can see in the text, the other two great pursuits. The other two great pursuits. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind. And number two, loving our neighbor as ourselves. This is now what, what grace is enabling us and freeing us to be able to do. Once what we were unable to do, now we are able to do. We were, not, we were incapable of it. Now, gone through the work of Christ and given us the Holy Spirit, we are now able to pursue the Lord, love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. And do you remember what he said in verse 28 when, he, when the guy said this? He said, you got the answer right. He said, do this and you will live. I find it interesting that he says, live there instead of eternal life. Do that and you'll have eternal life. And he says, live. And I think there's more that's being, that Jesus is letting us in. John 10.10. 10. You not know John 10.10? The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life. And life abundantly. Same word. Same word that's used for life and live are used here. And that, that living and that life is not just an abundant life that is to come, but it's an abundant life of, of joy and it, now. So where do we then, as uh, followers of Christ, as Christians, where do we find life? There's a lot of people who aren't going to like to hear this, but it's through obedience. It's through obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Are we pursuing? A love for the Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, strength, and mind. Brothers and sisters, if I just be open real quick, I mean, it's mind-boggling to me. it's mind-boggling to me, when I look even my own life, that how a Christian could go to church for years and still not understand the basic doctrines. And one of the reasons is because they never really press into or lean into Jesus. There's never really been a seriousness about the walk and relationship with Him. He's just a Sunday morning hobby, some weekly activity. He is what we pursue with all of our heart, with all of our strength and mind and soul. Brothers and sisters, at some point, a six-minute devotion a week is not going to be enough. At some point, hundreds of hours of entertainment a week is going to destroy us. It's it's literally destroying our capacity to think clearly and to think deeply. Now, I'm not against TV. I'm not against it. I'd, I'd like, we watched some good movies this past weekend. It was funny. Enjoyed it. Not against it. But at some point, brothers and sisters, if we're not leaning in, we're not loving. And the second commandment is just an extension from the first love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. When I was reading Spurgeon's words, he was also talking about how. There are some people in, in this world um, <clears throat> who, who hate it, who would do anything that they could to keep preachers from speaking of anything about practical grace, is what he says. Because it would make them sound like a mere moral teacher. The problem with that, though, as Spurgeon tells us, and tells from what I read, is that this is what Jesus does. He frequently talks about it. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is practical grace of what the kingdom of God looks like. Those who have been transformed by grace. This is what obedience looks like in the kingdom of God. And this is what it looks like in relationship and kindness to one another. You see, we want to be like the Good Samaritan. In this sense, because the Good Samaritan has saved us, then we are to be the Samaritan to others who welcomed who inconvenience themselves and lay down their life for others. For others who are in need, just like Jesus did for us. And that includes everyone. Even those who are not just physically different from us, but also, I guess it's the same thing, racially different from us. They are our neighbors. People who are racially different from us, they are our neighbors. It's what Jesus says. This is the, the scope of our, our theology of our neighbors. This is why I say this is of our greatest pursuits. Can you think of three great things that as a church that we should be battling for one another and pressing in and leaning into than these three things? My preaching and pastoral ministry professor in college uh, in Graceville, Florida, Panhandle, Florida, near Alabama, um, he, when he was considering his neighbors, um, there was a time that he lost his job because he considered his neighbors as a pastor in a church. You see, he chose to stand up and march in Selma in 1965, and as a pastor of a predominantly white Baptist church in Selma, Alabama, he was canned the next week. Can we turn a blind eye to our neighbors? And just walk around them and still say we're growing in the Lord at the expense of others? Jesus says, how do you inherit eternal life? Not just learn and love the Lord, but both loving the Lord and loving your neighbors. They go together. And these commands are are not at odds together. They're, they're always put together. They're always placed together in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. These two commands are always together. The place that they're at odds is in our hearts. The place where they're at odds in our hearts because most of us, we tend to be more one than the other. I I I tend to be more of um, the, trying to love the Lord with with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I I I love theology. I, it, it drives me in my preaching, and my studying, and teaching, and even leading in this church. I want to be pursue these and these things. But do you, can you see the danger though that if I'm only one sided, how much I can miss the needs around us? And if you can't notice it, I certainly can. I. I struggle in my soul when I see a homeless person or or see someone who looks like they're in the needs because that's when I start coming up with my excuses. I start coming up with the things that that legitimately keep me from doing it, just like the priest and the Levite had. I can't stop. I don't have time. I have the kids with me or I have to go pick up the kids. I, I can't give any money. I don't have any. I don't have money myself. I know this is where I'm deficient. I know that, that this is where I failed to love my neighbor, not just the homeless, but also people who are ethnically different from me. Do we love our neighbors as Jesus, who defined for us who our neighbors are? The people who are not like us. Those are our neighbors. And I'm confident that what we have learned in history, brothers and sisters, hear this, I am confident that what, we, what I have learned from history, that the church would not be so divided racially, if, and we would not have as much tension in our churches and in our countries today, if our ancestors in the church who, would, who came before us would have greatly pursued these commandments. Not just one over the other. I heard um, on a podcast this past week, I can't remember who, he said, you know one reason why there are black churches? Because white people wouldn't let them in. I know we, we tend to want to be on one side or the other. And, and if you feel that like I do in, in, in my life, as, as I do, notice that Jesus combines them, and they're not at odds. They're not at odds. Good doctrine and right answers and good living go together with loving humanity around us. But if you go and pursue just one after just one and lean more over the other, a more good, even, even good uh, humanitarian with, with no gospel, you're, you're, you, you fail to miss the point of the grace that has been given to us. So this is, this is my prayer for our church and our community, that we would be fierce about these things, because this is how we are going to love the Lord and love others and reach our community, all driven by His grace. Everything we do as a people, as a church, is driven by our theology. And our theology is what's driving us in loving not only one another, but loving our neighbors and engaging our neighbors. And everyone that the Lord puts in our life, we engage them. These are our greatest pursuits. There's nothing greater than these three things. I believe we have much to consider this morning from these passages. So may the Holy Spirit search our hearts this morning and show us these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lead us and guide us in your response to these great pursuits. Thank you for grace. In Christ's name, amen.